Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey there, spooksters! Welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. It is I, Jessica, and as always, I'm joined by my favorite ghoul friend, Tara. Hey, spooksters! Today is Thanksgiving, so that means in real time, I'm eating food that is delicious and yummy, (laughs) and I'm so happy. So happy Thanksgiving, Spooksters, from us to you. Yes. And today we're coming at you with an extra special topic. We actually have a patron select, which is a giant case for us. It's the biggest patron select we've ever done. So it's actually going to be a two-parter. Yes. And we're going to be covering the West Memphis Three. Before I get into that, I want to remind you that if you want to join us for our Krampus Day celebration, tickets are available online They're in the link tree in the bio or in the show notes below, and it'll be a grand time. Yes. So like I said, we're going to be talking about the West Memphis Three, and I'm going to give you a content warning. This does talk about the death of three small children. We will go into some details. So if that is a trigger warning for you, we totally understand and respect that. So if you need to skip the next couple stabbies, we get it like today and then next week. We love you still and we want your mental health to be tip-top shape and we don't want to cause anything that will trigger you. So just know we love you and this is safe space. Yes, yes. On May 5th, 1993, in West Memphis, Arkansas, which was hard for me to wrap my brain around because (laughs) every time I say this, I'm like, in West Memphis, Tennessee, that's not right. (laughs) Three little eight-year-old boys go missing while they're out riding their bikes and playing for the evening. The three boys would be Stephen Edward Branch, James Michael Moore, and Christopher Mark Byers. Stephen Edward Branch was born on November 26, 1984, to Stephen and Paula Branch. The two would divorce when Stephen was just an infant, and Stephen would remain in the custody of his mother. Stephen would affectionately be known as Stevie and was said to be kind, loving, and kind of a mama's boy. Paula would go on to remarry, and she'd marry a man by the name of Terry Hobbs, and the two would have a daughter together whose name is Amanda. Amanda was four when Stevie would go missing. At the time that he disappeared, he was four foot two. He weighed about 65 pounds and had blonde hair. 
So like, you know, a cute little button of a child. Yeah. (laughs) James Michael Moore was born July 27th of 1984 to Todd and Dana Moore. He would go by his middle name, Michael, and preferred to be called Mike by his friends. He was four foot two and about 55 pounds with brown hair. He also had an older sister whose name is Dawn, who was nine at the time of his disappearance. Christopher Mark Byers was born on June 23, 1984, to Melissa Defer and Ricky Murray. Their marriage would last until he was about four, but it was actually known that Melissa, I think they weren't really like together together because she was kind of with the man that she married shortly after that, whose name was John Mark Byers. And I just, it drives me crazy that everyone calls him John Mark Byers. Right? I'm like, do we really need all three names? (laughs) Like, I need this question answered in my life. Is his, like, because you know how, like, some people, like, my niece's name is Shelby Ann, for instance. Is his first name John Mark? Because if that's the case, then I'm on board. 100%. We'll call you John Mark. Right. But if it's, like, one of those people, like, they just call him by his full name, I'm like, "Mm mm-mm, can't do it. But like I said, Melissa would go on to remarry and she would marry John Mark Byers and he would actually legally adopt Chris as his own child. And like I said, he was around Chris from the time he was like an infant. According to his mother, Christopher was a typical eight-year-old and he still believed in the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. Mm. I know, I'm just like really crying about this. This has been hard for me, guys, trust me. Chris was diagnosed with ADHD and was taking Ritalin, but it wasn't seeming to help. And I remember this time, like when I was a kid, everybody was on fucking Ritalin, like every kid. Mm, Yeah. And it said that because of his ADHD, John would get really upset with him not understanding. And I think this just might have been like the doctors didn't explain that the medicine could possibly not work. So at the time of his disappearance, he was four foot tall and 52 pounds and had light brown hair. The three boys were best friends and they played together most days and they were very active in Cub Scouts and they had just reached the wolf level. So it was said that Mark loved Cub Scouts so much that he would often just wear his uniform even if he didn't have to go to Cub Scout meetings. I always think back to like the quintessential movies where like there was always that one kid in his uniform. Yeah. And he also loved playing cops. So he would wear like a little gold badge pinned to like every shirt that he wore. And it was said that he was wearing it the day that they disappeared. All three boys attended Weaver Elementary School and were in the second grade. So on May 5th of that year of 1993, Paula, who is Stevie's mom, along with her daughter Amanda, would walk Stevie home from school and they would get there about 2.45. And Stevie would settle in and do some homework And then his friend, Mike, we talked about, would show up around three wanting to go ride bikes. Stevie had gotten a new red bike from his grandfather. I don't know if it it wasn't around his birthday because his birthday wasn't for a little bit, but his grandfather gave it to him. So he was really excited. So there is a theory that maybe the boys were at school and they made this plan to come home and like ride bikes together, which I was like, that is so adorable. Right. So Stevie asked his mother if he could go ride bikes and play. And she says yes, under the condition that he would be home by 4.30. He had to be home by 4.30 because Pam had to go to work. She worked at the Catfish Island restaurant and her shift began at 5. And because she had lost her driver's license due to a DWI, her husband Terry would have to drive them or drive her. And I mean, Amanda was four and Stevie was eight. So you really can't leave those two kids alone for that long, which I will say that these boys were alone for a long time, like out playing. But 
I kind of looked at it as they didn't really want to leave Amanda home by herself. And then if they were going to take Amanda, they might as well take Stevie. So the boys leave the house and they take off on their bikes and they're riding north on 14th Street. About 30 minutes later, Chris then shows up to Stevie's house and is looking for the boys. But Pam is like, oh, they already left. I'm sorry you missed them, that type of thing. And Chris looks in and notices that Amanda is watching the Muppet Babies. And that's one of his favorite shows. So he asks Pam if he can watch with Amanda. And she's like, sure. And he went and sat in the living room with Amanda and watched the Muppet Babies. So after that, Chris took off on his skateboard because Chris didn't have a bike. He only had a skateboard. And he took off going north on 14th Street, but he couldn't find them. So I think he was just kind of like skating back and forth. But then like eight-year-old boys, they get silly. And he decides that he's going to ride down the middle of the street, laying on his stomach on the skateboard. Which sounds like really funny and cute until you remember that he's in the middle of the street. And let's be real here. That's how kids get run over. Let's be real. Me and my cousins did that shit all the time, though. <laughs> I, okay, I'm going to be really real. Like, I grew up in a church that had a giant-ass parking lot in front. The hometown that Tara and I grew up in, like, skateboarding was, like, the thing. I'm not exaggerating at all. And if you grew up in our hometown and you listen, you're like, mm-hmm, I get you. <laughs> every boy had a skateboard. And sometimes you had a skateboard and a bike, but mostly every boy had a skateboard. Most girls hung out with guys who had skateboards. My church had a skateboard park in it. Yeah. Like, that's how big it, like how big skateboarding <laughs> was in my hometown. So I too have done exactly what Chris has done, but not in a street. <laughs> <laughs> well, at this point in time, John, Chris's adoptive dad, is driving down the street because John's son, Ryan, has to go to like a court appearance. Also, it's like four something. And I'm like, where the fuck are you going at four something right. to court? But okay. I mean, <laughs> I thought maybe it was like, I don't know what I thought, but I was like, that seems really late in the day. But that's just me. So John sees Chris and basically like gets out of the car, is yelling at him. According to Chris, beats him, which I take as a spanking. I think it was more like I beat his ass type thing, like spanked him. Mm -hmm. And basically because he was being careless. And then John told Chris, like, you have to go home and clean the carport and the yard. And then once you're done, you can go back out. And I think this was like to teach him that you have to be responsible and like you can't do stupid shit and then just go about and play. So he did. He goes home. And this is actually confirmed by his mother, Melissa, who's on the phone with her boss. And she sees Chris in the yard. And she also knows that Chris came inside because later that night when asked where he is, like John is like, well, where's Chris? She's like, isn't he in his room? Point one, always know where your children are. So Dana, Dana Moore arrives home a little bit after Mike would get out of school. But I think what happened is that Mike went home, got his bike, and then left immediately to go play with Stevie and to go to Stevie's house. Because, I mean, we're talking Pam and Stevie got home about 2.45 and Chris is at their house at 3. And um, it said that Stevie, it's not that he didn't live close to them. He just lived on like the opposite side of the neighborhood than they did. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So he probably had to come home. So we're probably thinking like she got home about like 3.10. She was there with her daughter Dawn and she was like, oh. And then at one point she actually looks outside and sees the boys like riding down the street. So she like kind of knows where they're at. And she sees them about six o'clock-ish. She's cooking dinner. It's almost ready. So what does she do? She says to her daughter, hey, go get Mike. Tell him to come home so that we can eat dinner. You know, and this, I think, also would prompt Stevie, like, oh, I should probably go home, too. 
Dawn gets on her bike and starts to follow them and loses them. Like she can't find them or anything. However, when she's questioned by the police, she says she thought it was about 5.30. She came across three teenage boys. Two were black and one was a white teen. And he was yelling, he he was yelling, he was wearing a yellow and black shirt and yellow and black shorts. And the only reason I'm saying even their race at all is to give you the description because she will say that later she sees them again and that this group is also identified. However, I'm going to let you know now, nothing ever came of this. No, not at all. This is something that like everyone reports on and then you're like, well, what happened to them? And (laughs) you're like, did they even question anyone? No, they did not. So like I said, she says when questioned that it was about 5.30, which completely contradicts what Dana says because she says she sent her out there at 6. But we're taking like a 9, 10-year-old girl who doesn't have like a watch and it's not 2020 where she would have like an iPhone in her pocket or like a smartphone or some sort of device that tells her the time. So I think she probably was just going by the time of day. And if you think about May, May is when we really the days are getting longer. So it may have felt like 5.30 to her, but it was actually a little later. About this time, a local resident by the name of Kim Williams sees Stevie and Mike go into the Robin Hood Hills. And you're probably like, well, what are the Robin Hood Hills? Well, I could not describe it to you other than it was like this big bunch of trees. So I found a really good description online. It's, of course, going to be in the sources, but I'm going to read you part of it. It was like a fandom.com and it was talking about like the West Memphis Three as in like Paradise Lost because those are the documentaries that are associated with this. So it says here that Robin Hood Hills was the name given to the patch of woods located next to the I-40 and I-55 interstate. The woods consisted of several small areas. The north part of the woods, east of the Blue Beacon truck wash, was the least popular area among young children. The Blue Beacon woods was frequented by transients and drug users, although older kids liked to ride their bikes on the trails. The path was leading behind the truck wash separated into two directions. One path went towards the drainage ditch, running north and south inside the woods, flowing into the 10-mile bayou. And the other path went over a pipe bridge leading to the south portion of the woods. The woods south of the pipe bridge were sometimes frequent or referred to as the Robin Hood area. The children of all ages would play in this portion of the woods. And it was said that because it was so close to the actual neighborhood. I mean, I remember as a kid going outside, like wanting to play and be like a part of nature. And if the wooded areas, like I grew up on seven acres, so I had the opportunity to play in that. But like, if you didn't, I know that neighborhood kids came to like, not that we ever had that many neighborhood kids, but like when we did, mm-hmm. any child lived on our street, Um, they would come over and we would play like in the trees in our back pasture because you can make believe really well. So I get it. But the water in the South Patch was very murky and very dirty and had some aggressive alligator turtles. And they called this place the Devil's Den. The woods would actually like have a rope swing It wasn't so much that they could like swing into it, but like more like across it. Parents did not want their young kids going in there because like I said earlier, the older kids would go ride their bike on the north side. And I think if younger kids saw this, they'd be like, I want to go do that. But a lot of the kids in that neighborhood and a lot of the kids in West Memphis played at at the Robin Hood Hills area. But they, like I said, they stayed closer to the neighborhood versus because like literally the other side of it, like the north side, 
backs up to the Beacon Truck Wash, which we, like, the town I grew up in had a Beacon Truck Wash. (laughs) Those things are, one, they're smelly because of, like, all of the chemicals and then, like, sometimes water stands. So, like, I could get why kids wouldn't want to play over there. But then it also was, like, creepy because, like, you could see the interstate and I'm not saying this, like, all truckers are bad, but, like, there are some sketch truckers out there just, like, in every demographic. So I could see where, as, like, a kid, you might be afraid, especially because around this time, I think there were like rumors that like truckers would snatch kids up and take them away. That was something I knew. Right. I mean, granted, in the town that Tara and I are from, we have four truck stops. So I think trucker lore was probably more a part of our life than other places. <laughs> yeah. Every, everyone else from normal towns are like, what the fuck? <laughs> what? <laughs> Why do you have so many truck stops? Because that's where people stopped. We lived on the interstate, okay? <laughs> and the truck stops were actually like a place where a lot of people worked. So the truck stop is a huge part of the community. In fact, Todd Moore, who is Michael's dad, was a trucker. So Dawn comes back to the Moore house and she can't find them. But, you know, Danison's are out again. And as she's on her way back, she sees those teenagers that we talked about earlier going into a house that was like kind of on the north side of 14th Street. It was off a road called Goodwin. So she she sees them again. Well, at six o'clock, somebody sees Mike, Chris and Stevie riding their bike. Well, I say that sees them because we're not quite sure if Chris had caught up with them yet. I don't have a lot of details on this. I'm just going to like say it. There is like this oxygen show that kind of goes through this and they're trying to look in to see if someone else, another kid was with them. But I haven't really got a lot of info on that. Yeah, because I think I watched the same video because unfortunately, most of the time you can get the whole episodes on YouTube. But this one, it was just like the highlights of it. Yeah. It was still like almost 30 minutes long, but like it was only clips versus the whole episode. So if you've seen it, they might have explained it more in the actual episode. Right. So there's this like possibility that another kid was with them because the kid was described as being like a little chubby kid who was wearing shorts and none of the boys were chubby and none of them were they were all wearing jeans. So Mm -hmm. but anyway, so they they were seen. They think they see all three of them together. And about this time, John gets home with Ryan from court about 540 ish. And I think something good happened because he's like, let's go to dinner. So they're like, okay, go find Chris. They get in the car, which I think is smart. Like they get in the car and they start driving around looking for him because if he's on like a skateboard, he's going to be going a lot faster than they are on foot. Oh yeah, for sure. So they start driving around and they can't find him. And they end up like asking people like, hey, have you seen him? Which it starts to like kind of spread around that they're looking for Chris. And they end up finding his skateboard But the theory is, is that he probably like laid it down somewhere like, oh, I'm going to leave it in front of this person's house because I'm just going to jump on the back of one of my friend's bikes because that'll be faster. Because I don't know if you've ridden next to like a skateboarder and a bicyclist, but like potentially the bicyclist can go a little faster. It's got bigger tires. (laughs) Yeah. So about six o'clock, a woman by the name of Deborah Otinger said she yelled at the boys to get off her front lawn, which I thought was very like grumpy old man of her. (laughs) Like get away. And she remembers that it was about six o'clock because she had, or it was a little before six because she had to be at her mom's house at six for dinner. And so she was like rushing to get out. 
And I think she was just like frustrated. So she's like, get off my lawn. And like the kids ran away. And then that's when Chris's dad comes home and they're looking for him. And then that introduces this woman by the name of Jamie Clark Ballard, who said she saw the boys playing near her house. And she remembers that it was between 6 and 6.30 because she was going to church. Now, the Ballard family lived just a few houses down from the Hobbs, which is Terry and Pam. Terry is... Stevie's stepdad. Right. So it's like very close. And so she yelled at Chris like, hey, your brother's looking for you. Go home. And he yelled back, which I was like, oh, this kid's a spitfire. He yelled back, you can't tell me what to do. And then they all started giggling and like rode off together. And Jamie says she remembers seeing Terry Hobbs, Stevie's stepdad, and he was walking up the road calling for the boys, at which point they heard him and they turned around and rode back up the street towards him. Now, I need you guys to put a mental bookmark in that fact. Like you need to remember that someone said that they saw Terry Hobbs call the boys and the boys were back to them. That's what you need to remember. So around 6.30 p.m., Cindy Regal saw the boys playing by the drainage ditch in or around the Robin Hood Woods area. A little bit later, between 6.45 and 7, Dawn, Mike's older sister, says that she sees the teenage boys that were going into the house and they were going like in that direction and Someone sees them now going into the same woods. That's something to note. But like I said earlier, that's as far as we know. Like, this is where the story ends with these boys. No, actually, they weren't going into the woods. They were coming out of the woods. My bad. I correct myself. Which I'm kind of like, um, are we not going to look into this? But no, that is one thing you're going to find out is that these police were like, mm, maybe, maybe not. Okay, bye. At 7 p.m., Chris Walls, who's the local resident, sees the boys riding their bikes towards Robin Hood Hills. The sun is setting about 7.45, and it was supposed to be a full moon, which is a fun fact for later. So the sun is beginning to set, and the parents are getting panicky. So at 8.08, John Byers calls the police to report that Chris is missing, which is like, I get. They spent like two hours looking for him. Right. So it's not like they went outside and went like, Chris, Chris, and he didn't come home and they called the cops. Like, you know, I would have. (laughs) (laughs) same like they spent a substantial time trying to find this kid yeah and so john is actually the first parent of the three boys to report their kid missing that's at 808 and at 810 officer regina meeks arrives and becomes the most frustrating person in my life right now yep i don't promote violent people but if i met regina meeks i probably would have a hard time not punching her in her face Yeah. If this woman ever got like cop of the year, they need to take it away immediately and give it to anyone else. Mm -hmm. Anyone else like the cops that like arrested Steve Avery deserve it over her. Just saying. Oh, yeah. Moving on. Okay. (laughs) So Officer Meeks comes and she takes their statement. They tell the whole thing. He came home. He went out to play with his friends. I caught him in the street. John tells the cops, yeah, I gave him a spanking right in the middle of the street. Sent him home. Melissa's like, I saw him. I thought he was in his room until John came home and said, let's go. Where's Chris? Chris, not in his room. They were like, oh, shit. So then we've been out looking for two hours. Well, at this point, the Moors kind of live like either right across the street or very close across the street. And she sees that the cops are there. And so she's like, oh, shit, my son is with them and he's not home either. And my daughter's out looking for them and it's come back several times without him. And she goes over and she's like, hey, this is about 820. And she's like, hey, my son is missing too. And Officer Meeks does the first thing that pisses me off in this case. She looks at her and goes, here's the thing. I'm not going to take an official statement from you right now because you didn't actually call the police. 
I'm paraphrasing. I don't know if that's what she said, but this is what I imagine her saying. Um, (laughs) Which is not far off because she's like, if he doesn't come home soon, call back and someone will come take your statement. Oh my God. Like if I was a police officer and someone walked over to me and was like, my kid was with their kid and my kid is also missing. I'd be like, now I have two missing kids. Right. Well, she leaves at 829 p.m. And so she goes out and I'm going to put the biggest fucking air quotes around the word looking. She goes and looks for the boys for a mere meager 11 minutes because at 8.42, she gets a call to go to a local fast food restaurant called Bojangles. So she's like, okay, I'm done looking. I'm not going to call anyone else in the police department to let them know that there's kids missing, that I should also like, you know, have someone else continue looking. No. Now, Regina, being the crackpot cop she is, pulls up to Bojangles. And you would think that if someone called you, you would, because I've seen this happen. And I lived in small towns, so I know this. They get out and go inside to investigate. Not her. This fucking bitch. There is no way around it. Like, normally, I'm not biased towards people. I try to be... No, this fucking bitch. The word 100 in Welsh. Ask your Alexa. She'll tell you. (laughs) She literally pulls up through the fucking drive-thru and makes the manager who called the cops come to the window. And he's like, do you want to come inside? And again, I'm paraphrasing. I don't know. But the attitude that's been like regaled over time is that she's like, nah, I'm good. In her fucking police cruiser. She's a fucking lazy ass bitch. I am so ranty about her. You guys don't understand. (laughs) Sorry. So this is at 8.50. She fucking pulls up through the drive-thru and takes a statement. At which point the story is conveyed about 30 minutes before 8.50, which is about 8.20. A tall, skinny black man entered the restaurant and he was covered in mud and blood. First things I would be like, excuse me, he was covered in mud and what? And we're talking like an excessive amount of blood. Yeah. And it said that the reason they thought this was is either he was bleeding or he had been bled on by someone. Like someone bled out on him is what they basically were thinking. And when I say he comes into the restaurant, I mean, he stumbles like he's inebriated or impaired or just like out of it. And then he rushes to the men or to the women's restroom. Yes, the women's restroom. And he holds up in there. And after probably, like, I'm going to estimate like 15, 20 minutes, somebody goes in to check on him and he's just sitting in there. He has smeared blood all over the door, all over the inside of the bathroom. And he's just sitting there and like he leaves his sunglasses. There's a really good drawing of this that I saw in like a lot of videos. And it's basically like him sitting on a toilet with like his pants are still on, guys. Like he's not pooping or anything. He's just sitting there. But his like hand is on the wall and you can see like the blood smeared. And it's, I feel like that's probably pretty accurate. After arriving about 25 to 28 minutes after he arrives, he just immediately departs on foot. Now, if we're talking about 28 minutes, this is just a couple minutes before Regina pulls up through the drive-thru. And they're like, he just left. You could probably catch him. Now, one would think that a crackpot cop would be like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go chase him down. Nah, she's like, nah. See, while we were talking, a call came over the radio and there's some kids egging a house. I think I'll go handle that. Not catch the dude covered in blood. Now, here's a fun fact. Bojangles is less than a fucking mile from Robin Hood Hill. You have kids who play in this area who were seen in this area. Granted, they don't know this at the time, but like if the boys were that close to the place where they played because it was close to their house, you would think that Regina, being a cop, being trained, would be like, you know what I should do? I should go check out this dude because what if he's connected to the missing children? No, of course not. And I mean, okay. So on the other hand, I thought, oh, well, she heard kids are aching houses. Maybe I'll go see if these are the kids. That's fair. 
I would have been like, could you send someone out to see if it's these three kids? I'm going to go track down this dude. Mm -hmm. Granted, she was alone, so maybe she didn't feel comfortable. But you're a cop. I'm sorry. Call for backup. Also, why is Regina the only fucking cop answering any calls this night? Right. Like, did they just draw straws? And like, they're like, Wednesday, May 5th, only Regina. Literally. And then I'm like, is it because it was it Cinco de Mayo? But then I'm like, this is the Midwest. They celebrate Cinco de Mayo the way that Californians celebrate Cinco de Mayo. If you're from Arkansas, please let me know. So at 924, so this has been a big time, like a half an hour since she's seen Regina. Dana finally calls the cops because I think they went out looking. I think John and everyone was out looking for the boys. And I think Dana was like, I just have to officially get my kid on the record here. So she calls and tells the police. Now, her husband, Todd, he's driving truck and he's actually not going to be home until like 5 a.m. So I just mental note on that because I know like when I was first watching this, I'm like, why is no one interviewing Todd? Oh, because he wasn't there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So a little while later, it's about the same time that Dana's calling the cops. They get a call from Pam's work from Terry Hobbs. So what happens is Terry's calling in that Stevie's missing at 9.30 at night. And it's not the same as Dana calling it in. Dana was actively looking for her kid. This is the story that happened. Terry, who worked for the Memphis Ice Cream Company, he was a rep. He like sold, I think it was like more like machines type thing. I don't know what kind of, I didn't want to look up. (laughs) Be honest, I didn't want to look up what the Memphis Ice Cream Company was. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Um, But he like went to two more states and he would have to get up really early in the morning and drive like hundreds of miles. So he would be up way before the kids would go to like get up to go to school and he would be back in the early afternoons. And it was said that Terry and Stevie had a strained relationship and it was extremely abusive. According to Stevie's aunt Jocelyn, Terry would beat Stevie and when he would do that, he would make him like hold his arms over his head so that he could beat him unobstructed. And that he would actually end up leaving Marks. And how Jocelyn knows this is because Pam would tell her. So on that day, May 5th, Terry comes home before Pam goes to work and asks, where's Frog Legs? Which is apparently what he called Stevie, which is a horrible sounding nickname. I don't know. Like, is this a cute nickname for people in the Midwest? Like, uh, my parents came from the Midwest and never would my dad have called me Frog Legs. Is it local? If you're from this area, can you please let me know if it's cute? Because I take it as like he was making fun of him, especially when you add the abuse in. Because the big thing is, is that Terry really hated any time Pam would give Stevie any attention because it took attention away from him, which is so fucking sick. Like, I'm sorry. I'm just saying this. I might lose a lot of fans right now, but like there's a difference in loving a child and loving your partner. Mm -hmm. And if people don't understand that, that's a basic thing. Right. Which would make sense when we talk about Terry later, if you remember that, like, twisted part about him. So Pam told him that Stevie was out riding his new bike and that he was with Mike and that they were waiting for him to come home. Well, it got to be about 4.30 and Stevie hadn't come home, which, again, he's eight and doesn't have a watch. So he's probably, like, not, you know, he doesn't know the time. So they decide to drive around and look for him. And it's getting closer and closer to five. Terry says, Pam, I can't like, you know, I can't make you be late for work. I'll take you to work and then I'll go look for Stevie. And he goes and drops her off and she doesn't hear from him until he picks her up. At this point in time, Terry and Amanda go over to his buddy's house by the name of David Jacoby. David Jacoby is someone that Terry works with and is like really good friends with. They play guitar together. They're kind of buds. And oftentimes when Pam works in the evenings, he takes the kids over to David's house and 
You know, I think like probably David's wife feeds them and pays attention to them. And then he just gets to dick around with Dave, which makes sense. So Terry goes over there and has Amanda with him. And he gets there between 5 and 6. David's not really sure. He thinks it's more like between 5 and 5.30, but isn't 100% sure. And he says he remembers that Amanda went and was like playing with some toys that they had and that he and Terry started playing on the guitars. And he remembers that because David was trying to learn some new song and was having trouble with the chord progression and so asked Terry to help him. And so they were playing and... After about an hour of them playing on the guitars, like dicking around, David goes, where's Stevie? And all of a sudden Terry's like, oh, yeah, no. uh, So Stevie's missing. Maybe we should go look for him. Well, Terry's original story is that he gets to David's house and is like, dude, my kid's missing. We got to go fucking find him. And that the two of them go out and like they leave Amanda with David's wife and they go searching for him. That didn't happen. So after David asks, where's Stevie? He's like, you know what? I'm going to go back to my house and see if he's there, which would be would put him back in the neighborhood between like, I would say 615 and 630, which is where Jamie Ballard would see him. David is about 90% sure that Terry left Amanda there. I'm just going to go ahead and say 100% sure. It looks like David may have done a little bit of recreational use in his time. So (laughs) Yeah. And also because Terry said like, anytime I left, I took Amanda. I think it probably like played tricks on his mind a little bit. Yeah. So this is what happened next. So he goes home and he's gone for a bit, probably 45 minutes to an hour maybe. Or maybe not that much, but he comes back and they go drive around. And then once they go drive around, he's like, you know, I think we really need to check the woods. So why don't I drop you off at home? You change your clothes because I don't think they were in like going into the woods clothing. Get some flashlights. I'll go home, change my clothes and get some flashlights. He at this point takes Amanda with him because Terry never comes back to David's house. He dropped him off and said, I'll be back and like lickety split and then never came back. And David actually eventually went out and started looking for a TV on his own, which is I'm like, wow, that's a good friend. It's like 1993. Like maybe David's wife was on the phone and like he called and to tell him that Stevie had come home or something like that. And, you know, but he still went out and started looking in the woods. Now, Terry will go on to say that that night he and David and Officer Meeks, which we know that bitch don't do shit, um, <laughs> were all out in the woods looking together. And both of them were like, uh, we never were in the woods with him that night, like at all. So eventually time runs out and he has to go pick up Pam from work, which is where he goes in. He ignores her and goes straight to the fucking payphones and makes the call to the police. Now, Pam doesn't think much of this because I'm getting the feeling that Terry's kind of an asshole. Right. So I think she was just like, whatever. It's the end of her shift. She's done. She goes and she gets, you know, the little gumball machines where you get candy on him. She goes and gets each one of her kids a piece of candy and goes to take it out to the truck. And only Amanda is in the truck, which you're already missing one kid. Why are you leaving a child in the car by herself? She's four. Right. She could swallow something. This is back when cigarette lighters, you could like push in and then pull out. I would have been like, push in, stamp on face, burn. Like, that would have been me. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason my parents didn't leave me in the car unsupervised. It was not because someone would steal me, because my mom was pretty sure that if anyone ever stole me, they would return me because I would have talked their ear off. (laughs) My mom said that to me on several occasions. (laughs) So then she's standing there and she's like, okay, there's Amanda. And she's calmly like, I would say she's anxiously calmly waiting. And Terry comes out and she's like, where's Stevie? And he's like, oh, he's still missing. I just called the police. 
And which point in time, Pam is like, why haven't you come and told me? Where, like, what are we doing? And so she begins to freak out. They get home and they start calling her family and all that stuff. But while this is going on, John is out looking for his son, you know, and he's out in the dark and it's, you know, it's gotten dark. So he's like, I should go get flashlights. And he's too far away from his house. So he's going to go up to a neighbor, like a the neighboring house and knock on there and see like, hey, my kid's missing. Can I borrow a flashlight? And mind you, people are starting to come out and look because this is a small town and it's gossipy. So they're like, oh, people are looking, but not the police. And he goes out and he actually runs into a cop and a cop is like, what the fuck are you doing? Just like skulking around in the dark. And he's like, hey, my kid is missing. And the cop is like, your what is missing? I had no idea. Your kid, a police officer. In the town, the children are missing. Have no idea that the child is missing. Yep. Tara and I grew up in a small town. And if one kid was missing, every cop would know. Oh, yeah. They would all be there. Like, this is a small town. We understand the mentality of this. They would literally all, like, show up because they want something to do. Yep. Also, at this point in time, John makes his way home because he's, like, so pissed that this cop doesn't know what's going on. And he calls the sheriff's department and begins to bitch them out. Like, that's the description I was given, that he bitched out the sheriff's department. Also may have called them a bitch. I don't know if the word bitch was definitely used in description of this. <laughs> and at this point, the cops aren't really helping. But like the two, like the one he ran into and then the one that guy radioed, they were out helping. So there were people out there helping. Regina Meeks makes another appearance in the fact that she calls the family to tell them about like 1145 that she's getting off of work and she's going to leave a note for the next officer on to be on the quote unquote lookout for their boys. Because I think Regina was just like, these kids are probably hiding and they think it's funny and blah, blah, blah. They're probably at another friend's house. Like she didn't think this was like a thing at all, which I'm probably, I'm like, is she a mom? I hope not. Yeah. I highly doubt it. Right. So some cops are helping, but eventually it's getting too dark. It's midnight. Yes, there's a full moon. Yes, they can kind of see, but it's just too dark. Even in big cities like I live in Sacramento, I occasionally see deer and turkeys and wildlife in this area. So even though that this was more rural, so they kind of probably were a little unsafe out there wandering around. So they go home and John says that he couldn't sleep. He sat in his living room chair, just staring at the clock, waiting for the sun to come up. And he sat there all night. And finally, the sun was starting to rise. And it was about 5.30 a.m. on the next day, which was May 6th. And he hears the knock at his door. There's part of him that's excited when he hears the knock at the door. I think he thinks it's Chris. He's like, oh, my son's come home, you know? And he runs to the door, but it's Todd Moore, who is Michael Moore's dad. He got home at five o'clock in the morning and basically was like up, ready and out the door to like to go, you know. Go look. Yeah. Right. And he was joined by Terry Hobbs and Jackie Hicks, who was Pam's dad. Now, I want to say this moment is the moment where John meets Terry, where any of them meet Terry for the first time. There wasn't a specification that like Jackie didn't know them, but they definitely didn't know Terry. So these five men start looking again. And at this point, the police are getting involved. And this would enter Gary Glitchell. He is also one of those people you're going to become really frustrated with in this story. Trust me. He is a detective for the West Memphis Police Department. At this point in time, they also have the state police and FBI there. Because there's three missing boys at this point. Right. At this point, it's been well over 12 hours that they've been missing. You know, the last time anyone saw them was about 7 p.m. And they have no idea where these kids are. So they go out and they start looking again and the police are really involved and everyone's kind of helping. And they're out there for like hours and hours and hours. So it's about, I want to say that it's about noon at this point, like 1230. 
there enters another guy by the name of Steve Jones, who, let's just say that I wouldn't want to live in West Memphis, Arkansas. Mm-mm. The characters in the police department in 1993 would have scared the shit out of me. Oh, yeah, for sure. So Steve Jones was a juvenile probation officer with the county. And he's out there looking and they're in the Robin Hood Hills area and they're by the water where like the murky gross water is. And he's standing there and he looks down and he sees a floating black tennis shoe that has no shoelaces in it. Then they immediately like get anyone who's civilian like out of the area. Some cops do. But most of the cops are just fucking standing around staring at the shoe in the water because it's murky and they can't see it. And they know that there's creepy things in there, including quicksand, which is really interesting because (laughs) if you're a patron... You know that on the live we did, I talked about quicksand and I'm like, quicksand's coming up a lot this week for me. (laughs) It went from like being one of my biggest childhood fears to like non-existent to like in everything. So apparently (laughs) in Arkansas, there's quicksand. So they're all standing around and they're staring at this and it takes them a really long time. And finally, this detective by the name of Brian Ridges is like, I'll go in. And as he starts to go in, he realizes very quickly that he's going to have to crawl in like three foot water on hands and knees. And he's doing that for a while. And he finally feels around and he feels something that's like kind of in the shrubs or in in the water that's not not supposed to be there. Yeah. And he pulls on he pulls it out and it happens to be the body of eight year old Michael Moore. And he's completely naked. And so he carries him to the side. And when I say carries, I mean, he can't get out by walking. He has to then crawl out carrying this boy. So like, oh my God, that's got to be traumatic. Then he goes back in and finds the bodies of the other two boys who are also completely naked and their hands are tied to their corresponding ankles. So like their right hand is tied to their right ankle and their left hand is tied to their left ankle. And Michael was viciously attacked. His face and head were beaten. He had a lot of injuries there. Stevie was cut and had lacerations on his face and neck. And he had a lot of injuries all over his body, including bite marks. And it said that Chris was bitten, he had head injuries, and he was actually castrated. The bodies were anchored into the creek bed with sticks, and their clothes were, like, also anchored with sticks. They retrieved most of the clothing except for two pairs of underwear and, like, a a sock. And they asked the parents, like, well, would your kids just not wear underwear? And they're like, no, our kids knew they needed to wear underwear every day. And then I'm thinking, like, would an eight-year-old boy not wear underwear? I don't know. I feel like that's way too early for a little boy to like go commando. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a much later. <laughs> I feel like that's a much later in life process to be like, maybe I won't wear underwear today. I don't think eight is when you make that decision. Yeah, no. Especially because they were known to go swimming. And I know from having brothers that a lot of times like they're like, oh, I want to go swimming. I can just swim in my like my boxers. So I think little boys would probably make the same distinction. Like I could swim in my underwear. They said that the jeans were turned inside out, but they couldn't tell if they had like kicked them off themselves. And I thought it was really funny because when I was watching Stephanie Harlow's story, she's like, my son does that. And I was like, oh, girl, I kick my pants off that way (laughs) because my mom told me you were supposed to wash them inside out. So I was like, why wouldn't you kick them off inside out? 
Am I wrong? Are you not supposed to wash your jeans inside out? I do. I got told to do that so they don't fade as fast. That's what I was going to (laughs) say. So, like, you know, I was like, okay. And, like, or they're doing it right. But they couldn't tell, like, if they had just kicked them off, like, they were going to go swimming and it kicked off their pants. Or if someone had removed them, they looked completely the same. But about 1.40 that day, the police have to tell the family. So they tell them at 1.40. And because they were like blocked off, like police taped in that area and the families were on the outside, their reactions were actually captured by film. And like you can see John Byers where he just like, he looks like he's shocked as hell. Like, I don't know. It was like he didn't process. But I'm going to tell you like when Pam... Oh my God. When they tell Pam, she basically loses like all control of her body and she falls. And of course, I just want to say Terry looks really oddly calm and he's like smoking a cigarette and he's like holding her and she like goes into this like shock where like the police are having to hold her legs because she's kicking, not like kicking them, but like kicking out, like doesn't know what she's doing and like it's uncontrollable. And I was like, that is exactly how I probably would have handled that situation. If not punch someone, because like, I don't think I would have control of my body. I think I would start screaming and like trying to like run. And if nobody could let me run, I think I would fall to the ground and then just like, I don't know. So they do this and it takes the coroner, it takes the Emmy's office two hours to get there. And then when they do this, they can't even just like drive up to where the bodies are. So the police actually have to like wrap the bodies in a sheet, put them in a body bag and carry them to the truck wash because that's the closest they could get. Detective Gary Glitchell decides that he's going to withhold some of the information from the public, which is smart. And all they know at this point in time is like, they don't know much. All they know is that the boys are injured and that they were concealed. This is all the facts they know. They don't have very much evidence, anything. They did end up finding the bikes. They were about 50 feet away. So they did find those. And it was just the two boys' bikes, Stevie and Michael's bike. And so at this point, everyone goes home. It's a new day. You know, Gary starts immediately in on like, I have to get a list of people. I got to do something. And the state police go, hey, we'd really like to help you with this. Like, we have a lot of resources that you can use. And asshole Gary Glitchell says no. I had to read that like three times. I was like, what? It's a thousand percent ego. Mm-hmm. I literally, every single video, Kendall Ray, Stephanie Harlow, now us, all confirming this is an ego move. Oh, yeah. This happens in so many cases. This happened in John Bonet. We've talked about so many cases where, like, the police are just like, we don't want outside help. You know, I watch Criminal Minds, and a lot of those episodes are based off of real stories. And a lot of times when they're getting kicked out, that's what happens. But I would be like, if I was a local law enforcement, I get that ego was involved. But if, like, all of a sudden they're like, hey, we have hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment that you can use that your little town isn't going to be able to offer you, I would be like, sure, you can help. But like, I'm I'm the lead on it. Like, you can do that. That's what you can do. Right. But it's totally, this is totally ego. This is a little pee-pee energy. This is just like, literally, like, I'm putting myself ahead of this. And that is the thing, like, I've struggled with this case. I'm just going to say, it is called West Memphis 3 because we're going to talk about the people who it's after. But the one thing that pisses me off is that there are three boys who've never gotten justice, really. 100%. Yeah. They haven't. It's not even not really. It's they haven't because these families have no actual answers. Right. A thousand percent. But like I said, Gary withholds evidence so that way when they're talking to potential suspects, 
They're going to let them tell them specifics of the case. And they'll be like, aha, how did you know that if you weren't there? But that's not really, (laughs) that's not really something that can be done because a local newspaper realized that the police department wasn't going to share anything. And they did something a little shady, which was that they decided to listen on a police scanner. And they were listening to the police and the state police talk about this. And wouldn't you fucking know that the next day the newspaper was like, boom, satanic panic. I don't get it. I mean, I know why. I know whose fault this is. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Jerry Driver. We're going to get there, people, but just know that I'm over here. Oh, God. Literally, like, if the man was still alive today, I would have some, I'm going to still have some choice words for him. His his ghost, you can hear this shit. I don't give a fuck. Yep. Anyways. If you don't know what satanic panic is, you might be a little young or you've just forgotten. But basically now it's referred to as satanic ritual abuse. And basically in the 80s and in part of the 90s, because I think it was still like continuing on. Basically, there was this whole thing that was happening where children, a lot of children were claiming sexual abuse at the hands of people who were involved. Like they were Satan worshipers or satanic rituals. And I mean, there's this very famous case. There's a book even. It's called Michelle Remembers. And basically, it's about the school. This preschool would have like 400 kids in in there. And 359 of them had been sexually assaulted by a teacher who was of satanic worshiping whatever. And it was because the psychologist went in and started interviewing them. And they like, we understand children are susceptible to being coerced. Because how else do you get kids to eat fucking peas? You trick them. If you're a parent right now, think of the last lie you told your kid to get them to do something you wanted them to do. And think about that. Like now think about a psychologist sitting down and asking a child who children are naturally wanting to please people. They naturally want to bring joy into the world. So you have these children who want to please the adults in their life. And so the adults in their life are like, hey, sweetie, did, uh, you know, did Mr. X take you into a dark tunnel and perform sexual abuse on you while chanting to the devil or whatever and fly like a witch and all this stuff? And they're like, yes, this happened to me. I mean, I don't know what kind of school you would be in where like literally 359 of 400 children were sexually abused and not one parent would be like, um, yeah. But anyway, so satanic panic was taking over. And basically the the history lesson in this is that so there was a local juvenile probation officer who I've mentioned. His name is Jerry Driver, and I'll get to him in a minute, but also with Steve Jones who found the children, which I'm going to say I found very sus, and that they all fucking stood around and watched the shoe. Just saying, I find this all very sus, but moving on. And I will explain later without actually making an accusation. Anyways, so you take this whole satanic panic moment, and it's a perfect storm because we are talking the Bible Belt, people. Arkansas may not seem like it, but it is deeply in the Bible Belt. And I know this because my parents are from Oklahoma and my mom is from Kansas. My dad is from Oklahoma. I have aunts and uncles all up and down that place. So I totally understand this is a place where if you're not a Christian, you are of the devil and you will be, we will repent. Yes. I mean, I was just watching a TikTok where a guy is known for not having the same political views as them and people tell them that he's going to hell for that. And it's like, cool, it's fine. I love you, Midwest. I love visiting you. I love going to Oklahoma to see my family. I have often thought about living there. I wanted to go to to OSU, but my parents wouldn't let me. (laughs) Moving on. But anyway, so this was a perfect storm. Now, the case number for this case, when it went to court, 
was 93050666, which the original number was not that. It was 555. And the police were like, you know what? Let's just change this to add in more. It's of the devil. Because you have to look at the fact that it was a full moon and that genital mutilation is of satanic worship. This is part of their rituals. So obviously, we just got to find the Satan worshiper in town. Well, they're not even taking into a fact that like the night before a man covered in blood and mud went in to a local restaurant. But we're going to go back to that moment because remember Brian Ridge who went into the water to get the bodies? Mm -hmm. Because Officer Meeks didn't get off her lazy ass and go in and collect evidence, he had to go back the next day. And he goes back in and he's covered in mud and water and grossness and I'm assuming a little blood because of the bodies. I'm assuming something of a nature. Right. Goes in and he meets with the manager and the manager is like, so it's this tall black guy covered in mud and blood. And he looks at Officer Ridge and he's like, kind of like you. He's like, not even kind of exactly like you. He was muddy and he was covered in blood. So if I was a cop and someone was like, hey, someone looked just like you came into our restaurant about the time these kids went missing, I would be like, okay, let's get the evidence. Let's get this process. Let's do the best. Mind you, because Officer Meeks didn't go in and collect evidence that night, the restaurant had no choice but to clean. They were still operating. Right. They couldn't let anyone in that area because it was unhygienic. Like if a health department person walked in, they would be shut the fuck down. And they're probably thinking like my job, I have families to feed. This area is very low income, or at least it was at that time. I don't know if it still is, but people like they were depending on a paycheck. So I'm going to flash forward a little bit to the court only for this one part. So they get to court and they're asking Officer Ridges, when did you send in these evidence samples? And he goes, I didn't. Like, what date? And he's like, I didn't. And he goes, well, what happened to them? And he goes, I lost them. Yeah. Very, like, matter of fact. Yeah, I lost a piece of evidence. Like, it's no big deal. The judge does not look like this is a problem. No, but, like, the defense attorney is like, excuse me, what? I just picture someone sitting in the audience going, he just has a busy job. Like, leave him alone. God. Oh, my God. I I cannot. <laughs> right. And again, the manager of the restaurant who saw the dude who came in said he looked like the way he, like the blood and the mud, he looked like you. Doesn't mean anything. No. Whatsoever. Of course not. So... Now in the timeline, it's still the 6th. And while they're out looking for the boys, the woman that Tara is going to tell you way more about later, but I'm just going to tell you the little part to lead to the other part I need to talk about. So a woman by the name of Vicky Hutchinson, who I'm like, girlfriend, you, you trouble. Basically, she was coming into the police department. And I, when I first heard this, I was like, why the fuck did she go into the police department? Well, apparently at her work, I assume somewhere at a truck stop, someone was overcharging credit cards and her bosses thought it was her. And she's like, it's not me. And the only way to like prove that it wasn't was that she was going to take a polygraph test, which she did pass and clear. She wasn't doing this, but she still lost her job because her bosses couldn't trust her. And when Tara talks to you later, you'll understand why she's not a very trusty person. But anyway, she brings her eight-year-old son, Aaron Kyle Hitchinson in. So she brings this kid in and he's running around and this officer who's like handling her, his name is Officer Bray. And he's like very like, why the fuck did you bring your kid? He's running amok. And she's like, oh, so those three boys are missing. He knows them. And he's like, well, what do you mean? And he goes, oh, yeah, the boys came over and asked if he could go and play at a Robin Hood Hills. And I don't want my son playing there. So I told him no. 
And so then he didn't get to go. But Aaron has a story about what happened. So basically in this first interview, he kind of tells them that there's like a playhouse or clubhouse that they go to in the woods and that they play in. Mind you, they've never found evidence of this playhouse ever. Mind you, this is a story that's like recanted later by the officer who took it because it's not a part of the official statement that I could find. Basically, he said that after school on that day on May 5th, he saw a tall, black, skinny man with yellow teeth talking to Mike outside of school. I have like the full testimonies. I have all of Aaron's testimonies because he's interviewed several times. We'll be on the sources page so you can skim through a lot of them. So basically at this point in time, he says like, I was on the way to my mom's truck and I saw this man talking to him and I heard the guy say to Mike, your mom sent me to get you and to take you home. Now, when the police asked Dana about this, she was like, absolutely not. We live within walking distance of the school. My kid walks home every day by himself. He's he's fine. You know, it's not that big of a deal for him to walk home. And I would never send someone he doesn't know to pick him up. So the theory is along this line of thought process. And mind you, it goes nowhere. They really think this is the guy that they call Mr. Bojangles because that's the guy that was at the restaurant. And they think that he saw Mike after school and was like, oh, I'm going to talk to this kid and then followed him home. And then Aaron said that he was driving like a maroon sedan. The theory is that he followed Mike home. Mike gets home, doesn't think about it. He just wants to get his bike and go play. He does that. And that this guy basically like follows them throughout the night and then ends up killing them and then goes to Bojangles. Aaron's going to come in a little bit later. But at this point, they don't question the story this little boy is telling whatsoever. And when Aaron's actually older, when he's like 19, he says that the police really twisted his words. And Vicky says that at the time, the police made her sign something called an affidavit of silence about that very first interview that Aaron did. And they made Officer Bray do the same thing. But according to the laws in that state, there's no fucking such thing. There's no legal, that's not legally binding. Basically, it was like she was saying that they had to sign like an NDA and literally couldn't. It was a testimony. But Glitchell didn't want anyone to know about this. He didn't want anyone to know about what was happening, anything like that at all. And the other thing that Aaron said is that he thought it was John Byers. He didn't like the way he treated Chris and that John didn't like Chris. But when you look back at their story, he was basically his father from like birth because they were together from like when she was pregnant. And obviously, like if you remember this timeline that I'm telling you earlier, John is literally accounted for all day. All fucking day. Like, he's literally accounted for the whole time. Right. And they do think that because he starts, like, he eventually starts, or Aaron, I mean, starts talking about, like, satanic stuff and everything like that, that he was coached by Vicky. Now comes in my, (laughs) the person that I deem the biggest, I mean, like, there's so many bad people, like, bad cops in the story. And then there may be bad cops as they just did a bad job. Like, I think Lachelle was just really focused And he wanted to solve the case. Anytime there's three kids that are missing or dead, this is a big deal and they have to solve it. So with that, I think he was just really focused on it and he needed an easy win. And trust me when I say they took the easiest way they could. Oh, yeah. So in enters the man that I loathe, what I talked about earlier, is Jerry Driver. And Jerry Driver convinces Steve Jones, because they're both probation officers, that there's the satanic happenings in West Memphis, Arkansas. Of all the places in the whole world, Tara, in fucking West Memphis, Arkansas, there is an infestation of Satanists. 
which I'm like, I don't give a shit. If you're a Satanist, power to you. That's you. You know, I was raised Christian. And one of the things the Bible tells you is like, judge not lest ye be judged. So if that's your life, that's your life. Mm -hmm. I'm going to live by that. That's your life. I'm not going to judge you. But they were convinced that this was running rampant through the teen population of West Memphis. And you know why? Because of rock and roll. (laughs) All of these like Black Sabbath and Metallica and Nirvana and all of these people who were just like, ugh. Nirvana is not really like heavy metal, but whatever. (laughs) I just was like I said it and I was like, "Eh," but whatever. And in fact, these two kind of created a little occult task force and they read all of these books and they really studied and they became obsessed. So if anyone, like honestly, because they were like, there are all these teens who are obsessed with Satan and satanic rituals and they would literally like, guys, I'm not even fucking with you. Like, I'm not fucking with you when I say this, that they would literally on full moons go out and drive around to look for where places where they would have like, quote unquote, satanic rituals to bust them. Like also logic here, right? If I was looking for a group of people who did human sacrifices, as these two believed, why would you go looking for them like this by yourselves at night when they're supposedly in their most powerful state? Why would you go track them down? Like, honestly, I've literally thought about this. I was like, you sound like an idiot, sir. And at this point in time, in the investigation of this, I mean, the autopsy would take a month for them to get back. I just want you to know a month. So we're talking May 6th, June 6th is when they get the bodies back. Some very important dates to remember because Tara will tell us some important dates. They're going to be like, oh, what? So they have a list of eight names. These eight names are people, are teenage boys in this area, or teenagers, I should say, in the area that Jerry Driver and Steve Jones, which, okay, this is what I want to say. Steve Jones found the fucking body. Like he found the shoe. And he believes in satanic rituals. And then all of a sudden, these are satanic killings. Why has never one, anyone been like, boink? Especially to Jerry Driver, because that dude is fucked up. Yeah. So on the list of eight names are these three boys that we will come to know as the West Memphis Three. And it would be Damian Eccles, Jesse Miskelly, and Jason Baldwin. And there was like five other people on this list, but it is whatever. So... Jason Baldwin had been in trouble a little bit earlier. Basically, he broke into what I think he thought was like an abandoned area, but it was actually like this private property that had a lot of these old cars in there. And they just kind of broke the windshields out and caused some destruction, which I like, that's what 16-year-old boys in small towns do. You know, they break shit, they do, because they don't think of the consequences. When you're young, you don't think like, oh, if I break this window, what's going to happen to me? No, yeah, for sure. Us growing up in small towns, there's not a lot to do but get in trouble or, you know, fornicate. (laughs) I mean, there's the reason why in small towns, it's very stereotypic that there's like teen pregnancies and things like that. It's because there's not a lot to do. And a lot of times uh, growing up in a small town, my parents trusted me. They trusted the world around us a little more because it was a little safer. Like my kids growing up in in, like in Sacramento, they're not going to do the things that I did as a kid. And I mean, my husband and I talk about it. My husband grew up in Dublin, California, which is a suburb of the Bay Area, close to Oakland, close to places like that. I mean, close as in like driving, but you know what I'm saying. And his dad was a fire captain, so he saw the tragedies out there. So he didn't, he wasn't like, no, go out into the world and spread your oats. My parents were like, get out of my fucking house. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, go do something. Tara and I used to take off all day and like nobody questions it. Mm -hmm. because you're going to come back. And I think that's what these kids did. 
Also, it's noted that Jason's mom had some troubles. She was schizophrenic and that she had a little bit of a drug problem. She also worked nights, which meant that Jason was left a lot of times to care for his siblings, and he was essentially their parent. And there was another flaw in his personality. Terrence, the worst one. He wore black, he wore concert t-shirts, and his hair was not cut to a religious cut. Oh, no. It was long-ish, it was shaggy-ish, and he was going straight to the pits of hell. Oh, man. I am mocking this hardcore because I'm going to tell you this. Like, I resonate with them because I listen to, like, music outside of, like, the church. The church is what they accepted, you know? Yeah. Or my parents accepted. And I was weird. My teenage years were, like, early 2000s. Like, I graduated from high school in 2004. So I was like, I loved Avril Lavigne and I dressed like her. Fuck, I wore a tie to school a lot. I wore poodle skirts and Chuck Taylors and I wore like band t-shirts and Dickies pants and skater shoes one day. And then the next day I'm dressed like I'm from the 50s. Like my favorite outfit that used to bother the people at my church was I had these brown baggy pants, right? And I would wear those with a belt. I would wear this Looney Tunes tie that had like all these different Looney Tunes and different shapes on it. It was a very 90s tie. It was quite impressive. I loved it, actually. I'd actually bought it for my dad and he hated it. And then when I got into ties, he gave it to me. (laughs) He's like, yes, you may have it. And I was like, sweet. And it had like this one like orange circle on it. So I wore these orange tennis shoes. Do you remember like shower flip flops that had like the weird noodly feel on top? Yeah. I wore those and that was an outfit I wore on the regular with my hair. Like I know right now I wear my hair back like when we record without my bangs showing. But like I used to wear ponytails that were like on top of my head and my hair was slick gelled down. I would wear like a ton of eyeliner. So if this happened in my hometown, people would be like the fucking weirdo did it. Like (laughs) I resonate with that. I get it. I get it. Well, another person on this list was a boy by the name of Jesse Miss Kelly. Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. He was 17, but he had the IQ and like mental functioning of about a five-year-old. Yeah. His IQ was said to be between 86 and 73, which is very low functioning. And he struggled in school, so they held him back. And of course, this is the 90s, so there isn't someone standing up being like, you guys are ableist. You're like pushing your agenda on him. There isn't anyone who's there to help him. This is a small rural town in Arkansas. I don't think this was a priority for them. And I mean, that wasn't a priority for a lot of kids in the school I went to. So I see that. And he basically got held back twice and decided to just drop out and fix cars with his dad, Jesse Miss Kelly Sr., And the most adorable thing Jesse wanted to do with his life was be a pro wrestler. Like when I heard that, I was like, you go, Glenn Coco. And it was said that he was about five foot one and 120 pounds. Oh, so he like your size. (laughs) Hey, I'm taller than that. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying like (laughs) and like to show you kind of like the mental capacity we're working with, like the other thing that Jesse really wanted to do was be a race car driver. So he decided to build a race car track in his backyard which was like kudos to him and he remembered that the high like he's not going to high school anymore that he remembers that the high school flat like marching band had like these flags and he's like oh that'd be perfect for the track because i need flags so he went install them and most people who steal things conceal it until people forget and then are like look i though this is just a coincidence no he literally stole them and then put them up in his yard and was like look at my racetrack everyone and people are like did you steal the flags from the marching band like i think they saw the flags before they 
knew that they were missing from the school. So if you really think about it, like that's not how like a 16, 17 year old functions. Yeah. A 16, 17 year old knows that if they steal something, they could get caught. You know, someone functioning at a much lower level isn't thinking consequences. I mean, it's different than like breaking the windshield of a car parked in like what they think is an abandoned lot. They think like, I'm not going to get caught, not I'm going and proudly displaying the thing I did. And it kind of reminds me like instantly thought of like Peter Pan when the darling children are playing Neverland in their room and they go and they take their dad's like shirt front and then the cufflinks because they want the treasure map and then the treasure. And then they take it without really thinking because they're like, oh, people will be okay with me using this. So it's kind of that like childlike mentality. And because he was low functioning, he actually got along with a lot of the kids in the neighborhood and all of the kids loved him. So these boys would probably have known him or of him, let's say. And all of the parents loved him because he would watch there be like, hey, Jesse, we're going to go to the store. Can you watch my kids? And he'd be like, sure. And he would do like, they're like, hey, can you come mow my lawn? He would do it. Clean out my rain gutters? Do it. He was just that helpful guy. And so people loved him. And it's important to remember that he was low functioning. Now, the other prominent name on his Jerry Driver's fucking list of stupid was Damien Eccles. Now, when I talk about a traumatic background, we're actually going to go into a lot of detail on him because he is considered to be the ringleader of this group. And if you watch Stephanie Harlow's three-part series on this, she says that she read all 511 pages of his medical history. And I have not done that, but I kind of want to. So I'm going to do that <laughs> do that later. But basically, it was said that he was disturbed, but it was more of like the I need help, not the like, I'm going to go kill people. But he was born Michael Wayne Hutchinson, which is like the same spelling as Vicky. So I'm like, who, who you be, sir? Who you be? But anyway, um, and he was born in West Memphis, but he moved around a lot. And basically he moved like in two years, he moved to six different states, which is a crazy amount. His father's name was Joe. His mother's name was Pam. And he had a sister by the name of Michelle. And the family was like really poor. And I mean, like a lot of the places they lived either like didn't have electricity or heat or running water. So we're talking like impoverished. I watched an interview like a clip of an interview with him. And he's like, people don't realize that there's poverty like this in America. And he tells the story of like how he had to go, like they'd carry five gallon buckets to go get water so they could bathe or, you know, I'm assuming drink. And the other thing is, is that, so his family life was really traumatic, but he had one like kind of shining light in his life, which was his grandmother, which he called his nanny or his nanny. Basically, she wasn't biologically related to him. The story is that the grandfather cheated on the grandmother and had Pam, his mom, and his nanny or nanny couldn't have kids. So he just raised Pam like it was her kid and then treated Michelle and Damien like grandkids, which I'm like, that's a that's very big of her. And basically the family, like, like I said, they lived in places that were like rat infested. He says that like he would hear rats scurrying around him at night. And around Christmas time, you know, there's charities that go out and they give food to people who needed it. And he loved this time of year because that's when he would knew he was getting food. And they might bring a couple of gifts or they'd bring candy or something like that. And so he called it the Christmas candies, which I was like, that's really cute. The one thing you will notice about him is that he will have these like horribly dark parts, but then he will find something in them that's like a shining light. Well, his dad, Joe, becomes very embarrassed about their poverty. And basically when he's about six or seven years old, they split up. 
And at about a little bit after that, Pam meets her new husband, whose name is Jack Eccles. And he's a roofer, and he's 20 years her senior. So, like, that's old. But they get married. And it's funny because they're like, they don't know why they got married, like, what she fell in love with. And I was like, bitch fell in love with stability. He had a job. Yeah. They were living with rats. He had a house. He had a nice lifestyle. But there was a there was one thing about Jack. Like, about this time, Joe just stopped coming around. So I don't know if it's like Jack was like, get away, shoo-shoo. Or if it was like, Joe was like, I'm just not dealing with this. Because Jack was extremely Catholic. And this is the first time that the family is actually exposed to this. I know Pam had been going to church, but I think this was the first time the kids were like really exposed. Damien said that Jack was one of the worst people he had ever met, but also went to church more than any other person he'd ever met. Like three or four times a week. But one of the things that, like, to show you kind of how rude this man was is he punched their chihuahua because it jumped on the bed while they were praying. Like, poor Pepper. Right. Oh. Mm -hmm. And it was said that he would, like, bully and, like, beat on Damien. At the time was still Michael. Also, like, he would do this. But on the other hand, like, when he started getting into, like, his hard rock phase and, like, that kind of thing, like, growing his hair out, getting his ears pierced, wearing baggy clothes. Jack just didn't care. He's like, you know what? Let him find himself. Like, he'll figure it out one day. So this is like what I mean by like the duality in his life. Like he had this guy who's like, you're a jerk. You're an idiot. You're a piece of shit. And then he was like, yeah, go ahead. Pierce your ears. Grow your hair long. Listen to crappy music. That kind of thing. So it was like, okay. And about this time, they decide that Jack should adopt the kids because this is something they need to do. So he does. And when they're adopting him, they decide that they want to change their names. So uh, I don't think Michelle changes her name, but he didn't want to be Michael anymore. And given the chance, he changed his name to Damien, which was a very, there's a very popular movie called The Omen. And in this movie of The Omen, uh, the main little devil antichrist kid, his name is Damien. So they were like, oh, everyone was like, that's why he picked it because he wears black and he's into Satan. He picked it. But really, it actually had more of a religious aspect to it. He picked it because there was this, I think he was a priest and he was in the Hawaiian Islands, which was used for like the lepers colony. And his name was Father Damien. And he actually stayed because people were like, you shouldn't stay. You're going to catch it. And he's like, no, I have to help these people. And he actually ended up staying and he did catch it. And he ended up like, you know, still helping these people, even though he was sick. And Damien was like, that was cool. So when I found out like that was the reason, I was like, oh, man, people are super misjudging this kid. For sure. Well, flash forward to 1992. And basically what happens is Damien's being bullied by adults and he starts to push back on authority. And people are like, you have to believe in Jesus. You have to be a Christian. And he's like, I can't fucking handle this. Well, enter his girlfriend, Deanna. Deanna is 15 when they meet and he's 16. And basically they meet at a concert, like Michelle had some sort of concert and they meet and they're drawn together and they talk all night and they're like, we should date and be a happy couple. And so they do. And at first her family is like, oh, great. Like we accept him. Like, you know, Deanna kind of dressed in black colors too and was into that kind of music. But they were like, oh, maybe they'll be good influences on each other because they seem like good kids. They can be kindred spirits. Well, Deanna was a secret Wiccan. And I love that, that she was a secret Wiccan because her family was extremely religious too. 
And they were both, both kids were very well read, even though like they weren't really big into school. They read a lot. They started using this time to explore other religions. Deanna was very into Wiccan, but Damien started looking at like all these different types of religions. And basically they do what a lot of teenagers do in a small town because they've been dating for a while. So they start sleeping together. And of course her parents are like, no, 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 don't do that. And so what they used to do is they used to ditch school Because he actually ends up dropping out of school. So she would take the bus to school, get off the bus. He would pick her up and then take her back to his house. And her parents, like his parents knew they were there all day and didn't really question it, which is weird because Jack is super religious. And I'm like, wouldn't he be like, you shouldn't be fornicating, but just didn't care. And basically they get caught by her parents because he was supposed to bring her back before her bus left and she would get on the bus and then go home. But they were late, but he just dropped her off and left because he didn't want to be seen by someone. And basically with that, she goes home and her parents are like, because she walked home and her parents are like, why the fuck did you? Well, not the fuck because they're Christians. They were like, why the heck did you walk home? And she's like, I missed my bus. And they're like, well, why didn't anyone from the school like help you get home? And she's like, well, I went into the office and they didn't like do anything. So like a good parent does, Deanna's mom goes down and screams at the, the receptionist. And she's like, uh, one, your daughter wasn't even at school that day. And two, she's been missing a shit ton of school, which I'm like, why aren't they calling home and being like, hey, your daughter's not in school. Right. That was my thought. Well, this basically breaks up the relationship. They're forced to break up because her parents do it. But they're like, let's have a secret relationship for a little bit. But then after a while, she's like, I can't do this. I want to be able to go out in public with my boyfriend. I want to be able to like, you know, be with my boyfriend. And I'm like, bitch, you had a secret religion. You can't have a secret boyfriend. Weak sauce. Right? Right? Weak sauce. (laughs) So basically around this time, like... Shit starts going downhill in all directions for him. Jack loses his job. There's money issues. He's becoming sad and depressed. Like at one point he burns her love letters. He's sitting around listening to muty music. I mean, not that any of us would ever know what that feels like. Like any teenage angst. Like they made a really big deal about this. Like he was super depressed and burned letters and listened to like, I'm assuming Alanis Morissette on repeat. Like, I don't know. Was Alanis Morissette in 93? Now I'm feeling like of the fucking kid who called NSYNC. N-S-Y-N-C. I was feeling like that moment. But like, you know what I'm saying? Like he listened to that like moody, moody ass music. Yeah. And about that time, he also met this girl by the name of Damani. I know, Damoni. And they basically become friends with Benny's really quickly. She liked him, but to Damien, she was just a distraction because he was still like really in love with Deanna. In fact, when he finds out that Deanna is sleeping with this other guy, but also may have been sleeping with him while they were together, uh, he goes and like picks a fight with him and people tried to tell everyone that he tried to poke out his eyeball. So they get into this fight and basically he gets suspended and all this stuff happens and Deanna eventually gets back together because they're just like pulled together and they decide, you know what we're going to do? We're going to Romeo and Juliet this bitch. We're going to run away. They don't have a car because neither of them have a driver's license or a car. So they start walking. Oh, good. Their goal is to get to California. Jesus. From West Memphis, Arkansas. It's a three-day drive if you drive like 12 hours a day. God. <laughs> It's probably less, but, you know, I'm crazy and I take weird detours. But, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) so Jason is like, I'm going to go with you guys. And they just start walking and basically they don't get that far and they get tired because it's hot out, guys. In West Memphis, Arkansas, where there's fucking like humidity up the yin yang. And they find this abandoned trailer or they think is abandoned. And basically Jason leaves and they're like, 
we're just going to live here until we figure out a way to get out of this area, which was like they were going to do it soon. But (laughs) not so quickly. They get caught. And when the police come and arrest them, her dad is like, "Mm -mm." basically, when they when the dad finds it, like Damien's like, he wanted to kill me, put his hand on my shoulder. And I felt rage. Well, at this point in time, they put them in the same squad car, which I'm like, this is weird. They're handcuffed and they're like sitting in the car holding hands. And she's like, please say you'll come back to me. And mind you, this is the story he's telling. Please say you'll find me. And then they kiss and then they're pulled apart and they never see each other again. I don't know if they've seen each other since like now, but like they didn't see each other for then. Basically what ends up happening is they he gets taken to like a juvenile detention area. And guess who he meets? Jerry fucking Driver. Yep. And Jerry starts questioning him and he's really like, you need to tell me the truth. If you don't tell me the truth, Damien, you're going to be in so much trouble. And then really starts to like question him about his Satanism. And he's like, no, I am not a Satanist. I am not. And then Jerry somehow has Deanna's journal that they wrote. She wrote all her Wiccan shit in and was like, this is proof. And he's like, I am not. But they are charged with trespassing and sexual misconduct. And Stephanie Harlow points out in her video, like, how they're both minors. It's because they're having sex in a place that's not theirs. And I'm pretty sure that because they're minors, they needed to have consent from their parents. And obviously, they did not have consent. (laughs) So at this point, he gets psychologically evaluated without really knowing he's being psychologically evaluated. Basically, he he sits down with this person who's interviewing him, and he thinks it's a lot like Jerry Driver. Like, it's not, because at the end, they're like, yeah, he needs to like he needs to come with us we have a bed for him so at this point damien calls home finds out that pam has kicked jack out because apparently jack was molesting michelle it's a big deal and then now that damien's in prison or in jail or whatever pam calls joe joe's been in oregon this whole time having multiple marriages and children he flies back to west memphis and they're gonna be together they're getting back together and Basically, what they pitch to him, they pitch to Damien is that because they go to his house and they get all his like little skull collection, which I'm like, dude, I have Bernard sitting on my desk. He's a fucking skull. I got this little skull right here. It's a chapa stick. Like, um, it's not that big of a deal, especially guys. Like, even back then when it wasn't as popular, guys had skulls. Then he'd written in his journal and he's a moody teenager. And of course, he liked Black Sabbath and all those like devil bands. And I say that air quotes because I don't think they're devil bands. Anyway, so basically they tell him like, look, you look like a Satanist and all these things and you're going to go to prison for these like two charges or we can send you to a mental hospital and you can serve some time there, get rehabilitated and get out. And they were like, uh, that option, please. (laughs) Yeah. So he ends up going there and then he ends up, once he gets out, he moves to Oregon with his family and he's working at a gas station with his dad, but he's just really upset because he misses Deanna because he loves her. So he calls her, but she's like acting weird and then she ends up telling her parents and then the parents end up telling Jerry Driver, who then calls the freaking Oregon police or whatever town they live in and tells them like, this kid is a menace and a Satanist. Like you need to lock him up and basically bugs the Oregon police so much that they go and they like sit down and talk to them. And they're like, oh, he's just a fucking kid. But the reason Deanna was acting weird is because Jerry Driver was going around West Memphis showing people pictures of fucking Damien and telling people that he was a Satanist and that he was doing human sacrifices and animal sacrifices and that he was like, 
doing all these horrible things. And I'm like, this is such a misuse of power. And like the fact that Damien is a minor, you can't do that. And he's, and it's not like he's like a regular cop who doesn't know this. And I'm not saying regular cops should know this, but he's a, his specialty is ju- he's a juvenile probation officer. This has me a lot heated. So Damien basically is like, oh my God, what the hell is happening? He gets really moody and he decides to have a drink one night and his sister narks on him because he's drinking Kahlua and milk. And if I caught my like 17 year old kid drinking Kahlua and milk, I'd be like, go for you. You're just going to have a stomachache because that's just super sweet. It's a lesson you're going to learn. It's going to be funny. <laughs> so she's she gets on the phone and basically is telling someone that she thinks he's really depressed and maybe hurt himself or someone. And this gets into a big fight and the police are called and they come. And basically at this point in time, he goes back into a menstrual hospital. And then it's stated that they think Pam did this on purpose because she likes drama and there wasn't a lot of drama happening. So Joe tries to be like this father figure and is like, hey, you got to act right, blah, blah, blah. And... Damien's like, fuck you, essentially. And he says the phrase, I'll eat you alive in regards to like, come at me, bro, type moment. But people are like, uh, he meant it in the cannibal way. And you're like, no, he did not. Reaching. <laughs> Super reaching. And basically at this point, they're like, you just need to go back to West Memphis and live with your grandma. But he doesn't. He goes back and lives with his girlfriend. And then fucking Jerry Driver catches wind and arrests him because he's like a minor not living in his parents' household. And I'm like, is that a law in Arkansas? Or is that just like a law for him? And he basically hauls him into this office and chains him to a desk and is like, you're a horrible child. And then he gets re-hospitalized again. So this kid spends between like 16 and 18. He's in and out of like a mental institution of some sort and then when he gets out of the mental institution the hospital at this point they're like okay you're in west memphis you need to go live with an actual like person in charge of you like a guardian and that would be jack eccles because he's technically legally his father not biologically but legally and jack is not too happy with this whole situation because his sister accused him of molesting her and pam left him for another man and that would piss anyone off so he basically took it out on Jack. Now, Damien's trying to get money and do stuff, but he can't because like, obviously, like people in this town think he fucking worships the devil. So she says, you've been going in and out of the mental institutions and the hospitals. Why don't you get on disability? So he applies for disability so that he can have an income, which makes sense. But there is one thing that people don't realize is that at one point in time when he was in a detainment center, he tried to suck the blood of another kid and it's in his medical records, but Damien doesn't like to talk about it. And I think it's because it just sends like a weird message. I think this is like one of those weird fucking things where, you know, like when you hear that kids eat dog poop. Ew, I have... You've never heard this? No. <laughs> okay. I had brothers. Uh. I mean, not that my brothers ever ate dog poop, but I definitely have heard stories from their friends where they were like, oh, you know, I just wanted to know what it tasted like. And I'm like, you couldn't have smelled that? Like, literally couldn't have smelled the shit and been like, hmm, whatever. Oh, my God. Oof. (laughs) So that's what I think this is like the equivalent to. Like, Damien was like, I wonder what this is like. And then was like, oh, it's blood, but it's whatever. Anyway, so Damien's girlfriend, Demoni or Demoni, their name is. I thought it was like Domini. Oh, that's what it is. Domini. It is. I just fuck it. I can't say it. I'm sorry. She gets pregnant. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. And Jerry Driver over here goes around and tells people that the reason that they're pregnant is because they were trying to because they want to be able to sacrifice their baby to Satan. I can't with this dude. He's such a fucking fuck. This is a member of law enforcement. How? How did he? Well, he's in a small town, but I'm just like, how is this even a thing? They should have been like, hmm. Because he's in a small town and probably nobody else wanted to do it. Exactly. 
Ugh. As him and Steve Jones, and they got an occult task force on the side that they're just doing, and nobody's checking them. Mind you, there's no proof that he's ever been part of that. Well, anyway, so now we know the history of this. Well, basically, some things come around, and when they think that this is like an occult case because of the whole genital mutilation, Steve Jones goes and picks up Damien, and they question him about the occult. And they ask him questions like, what do you think? And they approach it like, hey, we know you know stuff about this. We need your help. And so he's like, cool, like, normally they're fucking coming after me, but like, right now, it'd be really great to not. So basically, he starts asking questions. This is completely off the record. They don't record it. And they're just like writing their statements down. And one of the things that they say is that when they ask him, what do you think the person was thinking? He supposedly says they would be happy about it. But what he comes out later and says is that what he was saying was that people don't do things that don't make them happy. So this person in this mindset, like, that's what it is. But they twisted his words and were like, oh, it's because they, you know, and they're trying to pin it on him. Mm -hmm. So it's Jason, his best friend, because Jason and Damien are best friends. So it's Jason and Damien and his baby mama. And they're all basically questioned about where their whereabouts were. And they were like, Jason said, I was at my uncle's, like Damien came with me, we mowed the lawn, and then Jack picked me up later, and then we went to pick up one of my prescriptions, which Jason's uncle's like, yep, they came to my house, they mowed the lawn. Then the pharmacy was like, no, they came at this time and picked up the prescription. So he had like an alibi. And then he said he was on the phone with some old friends, and they found out they were girls, so then they questioned all the local girls. But come to find out, it wasn't in West Memphis, it was in Memphis, Tennessee, where he lived. He was talking to these girls and they cooperate the story they're like yeah we talked to him his grandmother says however that she doesn't remember him being home that night but i don't know like did he live with his grandma or did he live with jack i don't know yeah i thought it was jack so so on may 8th they bring him in and he's interviewed for eight and i say interviewed not interrogated for eight hours and absolutely nothing is recorded and they basically ask him what happened what they think happens and he kind of hits the nail on the head because this is a gossipy little town like half the town was out when they found the bodies and they found the bodies in water so basically he's like they probably had head injuries and drowned because the other thing was is like gary glitchall was like don't tell anyone but all the cops also went and told everyone So then it was like he kind of knew because people were talking about it and they were like, oh, my God, he must have done it because guess what? The autopsy isn't even back yet. This is like May 10th. This is like five days after. Nobody knows this. So then because of that and because of that story and Glitchall starts going down this list that Driver has given him and this comes together, basically they're like, this is what this is. And then with the because they take what Aaron says, because they interview him several times. And Aaron changes his story multiple times. He's a kid and they lead him. Like there's one video clip that they're like, what did the boy say to you? And he said nothing. And he's like, no, what did Stevie say to you? And he's like, oh, to run. And everyone's like, well, why would he say that if he didn't know? It's like, no, this is fucking 20 questions. Literally, a guy who knows this about like interrogation, he's like, that's basically what it is. You break it down. Like you, once you hear, nope, you're wrong. Nope, you're wrong. And then you've gotten a few, oh, that's, that's right. You know the story to tell. I mean, it gets crazy. It gets crazy. So because I'm handing it off to Tara, we're actually going to end this episode and you're going to hear her part next Thursday. So with that, we will see you back here on Monday for another episode. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>